It's the Lord's Day, and we're grateful that, uh, that you've come to be with us. Thank you again for those of you who, it's kind of normal now, who knew what we would be calling normal in 2020 for sure, but thank you for just your help and doing our part to make sure that everybody stays as, as safe as possible in these strange days. Um, I'm grateful for that, wearing, wearing your masks and trying to distance. I know some of you are itching to hug. I, I don't know that I want to be around some of you when you get to catch up on the hugging. Uh, you're going to squeeze the life out of some of us, and that, that's going to be okay. We'll, uh, we'll have some elders on hand to pray and try to make that right, and okay, we'll do the best we can. I tell you, um, how forgetful are you? <laughs> no, no show of hands. Um, how forgetful are you? Am I the only one, and, and I'm not... It's terribly seasoned in years. I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but at 43, am I the only one that walks into a room in my own home, having just got up from the couch or somewhere to go do something, get in the room and go, wait, what did I come in here for? Is that, that's my own experience. Okay, I see those hands all over the place. I see that. Um, Today is Sunday, and uh, it's a day set aside for the gathering of the local churches across the globe for worship. We gather on the first day of the week to commemorate that we are on this side of the resurrection. Now, if if that's a revelation to you, if this is the first time you're realizing, you may be more forgetful than we thought because you're sitting in pews, so we need to talk maybe after church, but that's not what my point is. We at Grace Covenant also set aside the first Sunday of each month for communion. We come to the Lord's table, we stop, we take a moment, and we take the Lord's Supper. We will do that today as we have faithfully done as a church body and life for 30 years of gathering together. Each week as a church, we set a table for each and every one of you from uh, babies to uh, well-seasoned in years. A table is set for you to come and feast on the Word of God by multiple means. We try to maximize your time here on Sundays That's why we offer Sunday school. We do that because still 65% of us commute from about 20 minutes or more away. It's the reason we don't do midweek gatherings on campus. Have you tried to navigate South End at 6 o'clock on a Wednesday night? If you don't get hit by a pedestrian, um, it just, you're not doing it right, I don't guess. It's just difficult to get here. So we try to front load the Sundays. We don't apologize for that. We, We do that intentionally and on purpose. We also do that because you can't get all you need for your growth from God's Word, and you can't get all the fellowship you need by just being in here on a Sunday morning gathered for worship. You can't grow as a disciple from just this one fix, if you will. Show up for Sunday school. There's something for the whole family. Show up for Sunday school. There's something for all ages. There's something for singles and married and divorced and widowed and covenant members and guests, young and old, all points in between. It's time to dive back in to studying and growing together. The curriculum for the whole church that we're using is called the Gospel Project. And two weeks ago, if you're plugged in, you know that we took our time and spent time with the Lord's Supper in Luke 22. And it was such a meaningful time for us, a magnificent study. For those of us gathered online, it was deeply moving. I'm sure it was in the adult Sunday school class as well. It shook loose some of the baggage that we've all had from our past experiences. Some had made more of the Lord's Supper than 
they should have. Some had made less of it. For some, it represented a weapon of legalism in their history. For others, it was sacred, but it took on richer meaning as we studied it together. I think many modern-day Jewish families, either redeemed or still practicing Jewish families, have the same baggage when it comes to the Passover. It's so easy to forget things. That's why the Lord tells us to remember, remember, often throughout Scripture, remember, remember, remember. That's why we have feasts and festivals and memorials. That's why we celebrate Grace Covenant's anniversary on Palm Sunday. That's why we do that, so we can remember what God has done to bring to the front of our minds the substance for the symbol. As we work through the text this morning, we're going to see the call to Israel to remember some things, but also the call to us before we gather at the Lord's table. The tenth and final plague is upon us. We spoke of it prophetically last week. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus 12. The reading's already happened. The pew Bible's right in front of you. You can grab that as well. Genesis, Exodus, second book in the Bible. Flip till the, you get a few pages in. You'll see that top number is 12. That's where we'll start. What God did to the Egyptians was no surprise to anybody in the room. And if you haven't been following with us, all of the messages are available online. Better than that, you've got the Word of God. Just read the text for yourselves. But what happened to the Egyptians is no surprise to us. What may shake us a bit is the way he treated his people Israel in this particular plague. Just like the Egyptians, the Israelites were under a sentence of death. The same night that God brought death to every house in Egypt, he also visited the home of every Israelite with the purpose of killing their firstborn sons too. But in his mercy, he provided a way for them to escape his wrath. Now before we dive into four things that I think the text calls us to remember this morning, let's take a little bit of a picture of some of these elements that might help us navigate it. Look at verse 2 with me, 12-2. The word of the Lord says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Interesting to me that God is establishing the calendar for the Israelites. He's resetting the calendar and he's using theology to do it. Their calendar is based on theology. The very first thing, the very beginning of every year, they need to remember God's grand salvation. Wow. Even the atheists and the militant agnostics of the day struggle when we bring up the calendar issue now because there is a period B.C., before Christ. If he was just a man, why did all history change on a dime when he showed up? No, no, he was more than a man, more than a teacher. He was God's son, the word with flesh on. Israel's calendar is set by theology. God desires that kind of first place in your life too. He's not interested in being your co-pilot. He's not applying for the position of life coach for you. He sits on the throne of all glory and majesty, and he longs for your surrender to his absolute rule and reign in your life. He is God Almighty, and your relationship with him and with his church and your witness and worship should take absolute priority over everything else in your life. Your view of God affects your priorities. Your view of God affects your calendar. Our calendars too are affected by our theology, 
I believe. It's also worth noting that we see the instructions here for the Passover twice in our text. I had uh, our brother Jeremy read it for you once. It shows up two times in chapter 12. It's separated by the instruction of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes you read through the Bible, you read things multiple times, you're like, why is that in here twice? Well, in this instance, the first is God's instructions to Moses, and then he goes through the Feast of Unleavened Bread as well, connected to Passover, and then Moses gets the same instructions to the people of God. We won't go into tell into both, but that's why it's in there twice. Let's start with our first header for our remembering this morning. It covers the biggest swath of Scripture for us. Here it is. Ready? Remember the substitute. Remember the substitute. I mean, there's a huge sacrifice here that we're going to see. We're going to cover verses 1 through 28. We're not going to read them all. You're going to read them this week for homework. You've had so much homework in Exodus. Wow. Don't worry. That'll never change. Ah, yeah, I want you to read your Bibles. Um, Remember the sacrifice. Remember this substitute. Last week we concluded with the realization that there would be no exodus, there would be no salvation, no deliverance without blood. I want to bring your attention to a few specific concerning, a few specifics rather, concerning this right here in this first passage. Look at verse 5 with me. The word of the Lord says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goat. So it's not just any lamb. The lamb that you need has to be a certain way. You've got to go hunt for this lamb. You've got to go find the one that matches. This is a, an unblemished lamb. The lamb was going to serve as a substitute. But the lamb was only accessible, only acceptable to God if it was one year old, a male, and without blemish. It was selected on the 10th day and kept until the 14th day. It would have been kept in their home. They would have developed, forgive me, no, uh, no str stretch here for any pet owner in the room, but even in four days, they would have developed somewhat of an attachment to this little lamb. Aw, look at the lamb. And I can just hear the dad going, yeah, don't get too attached, right? Because it's not that he's going out to a big farm for lots of things. We're going to eat all of him soon. Sorry, didn't mean to gross everybody out, but like that's the difference here, right? So he comes into the house for four days. In Deuteronomy 17.1, God talks about how important these requirements were. He said it was an abomination to sacrifice a lamb with a blemish. So when God says something, when God communicates something clearly in his word, when he lays down the law, pun intended, there are consequences when we blow it. He means what he says, and God says what he means. In verses 6 and 7, if you'll look, you'll notice the lambs are killed at twilight. It's a vivid reminder that all deserve judgment and that darkness is connected with judgment. A lamb without blemish points to the fact that a blameless life was required in the place of the guilty who needed salvation. The blood of the lamb, we've all, most of us have seen the movie. We've seen it, the pictured in our mind's eye. We've seen it depicted in some way, but was to be painted using hyssop over the doorpost. Doing that demonstrated that they believed God and that they were going to obey God's word. Israel escaped judgment through this sacrifice and salvation was accomplished by faith in the substitute. You catch that? Remember the substitute. Remember the sacrifice. Look at verse 11 with me. 
In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, my maternal grandmother, who died many years ago, would push back on this. The second you walked in the door, she'd be like, take your coat off, stay a while. That's what she'd say. Are you hungry? And it, it didn't matter what your response was. All she heard was, no, I'm starving. You could have said, yeah, we just left the restaurant. I can't move. In fact, I may need to go have my stomach pump. I, I've got a problem. The food's up to here. She's like, great, I made a pound cake. Come on in here and sit down. That was Memo Alexander. He's saying here, that's not this kind of meal. This is not a stay a while kind of meal. There's specific instructions, but you are to sit on the edge of your seat. Why? Because this is not your Passover. This is the Lord's Passover. And this is not your experience to be innovative with or to tweak to be relational with. You are to eat and be ready to go. They ate the first Passover standing up, ready to leave Egypt at a moment's notice. There were to be no leftovers. Once it was roasted, the entire lamb had to be consumed. Now, the Bible doesn't go into great detail to explain why that is. That has not stopped commentators from filling pages with volumes as to why that is. You will find that's the case. If you ever buy a commentary set where the Bible is silent, men tend not to be. But uh, I'll just say that it just shows the sacredness. I think it shows the importance of this lamb as distinct from others. There's something special about this, even in the way that it's consumed. Regarding the Passover meal and the memorial feast of unleavened bread, listen, Phil Riken writes this, because we're talking about two things here. The Passover, which is happening in this one time, but then is celebrated throughout all time as the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Riken writes this. He says, Passover is about getting saved. It reminds us that we have been delivered from death by a perfect substitute whose blood was shed as a sacrifice for our sins. The feast of unleavened bread reminds us what God wants us to do once we've been saved, and that's to live a sanctified life, becoming more and more free from sin, getting that leaven out of the bread. We are saved, church, in order to be sanctified. Israel should never forget the sacrifice of the unblemished lamb. They should never forget there was a substitute so they didn't have to die. Second thing to remember this morning. Remember the severe judgment and mercy. The severe judgment and mercy. Verses 29 through 32. Look with me at verses 29 through 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up, he and all of his servants, and there was a great cry. There was not a house where someone wasn't dead. Now, in Moses' day, the firstborn had significant responsibilities and privileges. In that day, losing any child would have been difficult, as it is today. Some in this room have even suffered the loss of a child. It's tough. But losing a firstborn would have been devastating to a family in a way that it's hard for us to identify with on this side of that culture. You see, it would have been devastating to their future security, their stability, their land rights. I mean, it affected everything. This plague... This tenth plague that God unleashed 
is such severe judgment, it demonstrates the seriousness of their sin. The negotiations are over. This is judgment day. All of Egypt was judged without distinction from the rich that could buy their way out of anything in their palaces to the one in the deepest dungeons. One of the pharaohs had executed judgment, a barbaric unrighteousness judgment against the Hebrew boys by throwing them all into the Nile, unrighteous, motivated by fear. God is enacting righteous judgment on all that Egypt holds dear. Think about it. The land is decimated. All they have left are their families. And God is taking that. This is severe judgment. The sweeping nature of the tenth plague on Egypt requires so much. It was probably tempting for Israel to believe that they were more righteous than the Egyptians. But the truth is, they deserve to die just as much of their enemies. Watch this, church. If God had not provided a means for their salvation, they would have suffered the very same fate. The Israelites were as guilty as the Egyptians. In this final play, God is teaching Israel about their sin and their salvation too. If we're not careful, if we're not careful with our good, moral, upstanding citizenship lives and not getting locked up and not in illicit drugs and this and that and the other, and our culture not marked by that in our own families, we may think of ourselves as more worthy of the grace of God than those wretched down and outs. But the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The grace of God needs to appear to all men. We are all unrighteous. There's not one righteous outside of the gift of God Almighty. Look at verses 31 and 32. It's really pathetic to see Pharaoh groveling here, but that's exactly what he's doing. He summons Moses and Aaron by night and says, Up, get out from here. Go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said and be gone. And look at the last words. And, and, and bless me also? What? Now, if you are like me, I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry on a lot of reasons if you are like me. But if, uh, if you're thinking like I'm thinking, I'm going, yeah, you had me till you said, bless me, Pharaoh, right? Think about this, though. How ironic that Pharaoh is commanding the Israelites to leave Egypt. He wasn't just letting them go. He was ordering them to depart. Up, leave, go. Here's a man who swore he would never give in but now is doing exactly what God wanted him to do. Pharaoh gave in to all of Moses' demands. He he granted Israel's unconditional release. God's people could go. The women and children could go. Their flocks, their herds could go. No conditions set for the time of their return. His concession speech flashes bright yellow like a yield sign on the highway saying, yield, yield. Don't resist God's will. For all of his hardness of heart, all the times he told God no, and all the times he said yes, but never followed through, Pharaoh gained nothing. Do you hear me? 
His, all that pushing back, he gained nothing for that. His own people at the end were crying out, Pharaoh, please give in, give in. Some of you are resisting God with every fiber of your being. You're playing the role right, but you are pushing back on something. If your family could cry out to you now, they'd say, stop it, give in, give in. Your church family's crying, give in. For those of you watching online, you don't attend Grace Covenant. I'm saying, stop, give in, yield. You gain nothing by resisting the Lord. Pharaoh, in the end, had to come and accept everything on God's terms, and so will you. How are your negotiations going with God recently? You need to give way. Surrender to God's terms. It's much better not to resist His claim on your life, but simply to accept His will. It's what you were made for. Remember the substitute. Remember the severe judgment and mercy and remember the salvation from the Lord. Third, remember this morning. Remember the salvation from the Lord. Verses 33 through 42, remember the salvation. The Egyptians were urgent. I'm gonna blow through this text, just kind of summary. You can follow along. Verse 33, they're like, get out of here. We're all gonna die if you stay much longer. So the people took their dough before it was even leavened, their bowls, They bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. They'd ask for silver and gold jewelry. So Egypt sends them away and and gives them stuff to let them go. They basically plundered the Egyptians, verse 36. They journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, verse 37, about 600,000 men on foot. I'll come back to that. Besides women and children, a mixed multitude. I'll come back to that phrase. Also besides them. Pretty remarkable. Not only are they leaving, but others are leaving with them. They baked these unleavened cakes. They prepared for themselves. The time, verse 40, that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. You think you've been waiting on God. 430 years. At the end, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night, verse 42, of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all generations. We're looking at the establishment of the Passover feast, why they're doing it, the exodus of God's people, and why they still observe it to this day, and why we even touch to it when we come to the Lord's table. The exodus is beginning. They're starting to leave Egypt. Egypt is running them out and giving them nice things to go. <laughs> you get it? Yes, here, take this and this and this and this and go, just go. Let me mark a couple of items for you of, of note. I'll send an email out about the 600,000 men. 600,000 men? Conservatively, that would put the exodus at about two million in the gathering. What? I wonder if they had any life straws, like for the river and stuff, to drink all that water. That's a lot of, my goodness, two million? I mean, that's conservative. That's just a four-person family, roughly. Not even that, well, that and a little bit of change, but come on. Well, it's somewhere around that. What if it wasn't quite 600,000? Historians have a problem with this, and they're like, oh, there's no evidence of this. Well, there is, and there isn't. It's desert living and nomadic life, and so, by the way, let me just tell you, after hours and hours and hours of researching, reading people I don't normally read behind that would not necessarily even hold to the authority of Scripture. I was not shaken in the least in doubting the God's Word's authority on this matter. 
There is an interesting note here for the word thousand. It can be translated groups, and it's often translated like thousand in some places and kind of battalions. It's a military term in others. So minimally, this could have been tens and tens of thousands, okay? Maximally, this could have been well over two million. Either way is miraculous. Either way glorifies God and neither takes away from the text in any way, shape, or form. I'll send you some of the reading this week in that and you can read uh, for the three of you that will nerd out on such things. Okay, verse 38, a mixed multitude. I'll come to that in a minute, but there are more than Israelites in the crowd. Did you see that? I've read this passage many times, but that really jumped out at me. It wasn't just the Israelites leaving. There are non-Israelites going with them. Here's the main passage the main thing I'd have you remember you're going to make little sub notes and it's the only one I think I have sub notes for you for little sub notes right here God gave salvation we remember the Lord's salvation 430 years do you hear me church 430 years but God keeps his promises in Genesis 15 14 here are three promises the Lord kept Genesis 15 14 God promises that his people would be rich upon leaving the land look at the text but I'll bring judgment on that nation, that's the nation that they serve in slavery, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God keeps his promise, y'all. God kept his promise that they would be a great multiplying nation, Genesis 12, 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Seventy people went into Goshen. Do you remember that? Conservatively, on the exit... We're at tens of thousands. Lowest number that any historian will accept. It's tens and tens and tens of thousands. Highest number above two million. They multiplied, y'all. <laughs> they grew. They were small. Now they're great. Third promise God kept. Other nations were beginning to be blessed through the seed of Abraham. I'll bless those who bless you. On him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. A mixed multitude. An ethnically diverse crowd also went up with them. This means that many who were not descendants of Abraham and Israel joined the Israelites as they left Egypt. 430 years they waited, but God kept his promise. God keeps his promises. Brother or sister, this morning, I would encourage you to believe God, though the lightning might be flashing in your life. Believe God, though the thunder might be crashing in your life. Resist the temptation to behave like a practical atheist in the waiting and worry about everything and look and act just like the world about everything. No, no. Even when you don't feel him, even when you can't see him, remember he never stops working for his glory and for our good. He is the way maker, the promise keeper he is indeed the light in the darkness let your strength be renewed while you wait on the lord and that only happens when you stand on the word of god the passover and the feast we remember the substitute the severe judgment the salvation and finally this morning remember the strong hand of the lord we peek over into chapter 13 a few verses and we look at the strong hand of the lord look with me at exodus 13 3 quickly as i Finish up this last point, I'll give a little application. Then we'll worship in song. Then we'll say goodbye to our online crowd and come back and receive the Lord's Supper together. 
Chapter 13, verse 3, you there? Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from, the ho- from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. This meal that they're talking about, this nuanced rules and formalities was intended to remind God's people of the details of their deliverance. If you're like me, I've said that twice already, I need to get off of that, but if you are, you might say, how could they forget this? I mean, this is so incredible, so spectacular, you don't often forget seeing frogs in people's faces. I mean, come on, lice all over the place and cattle dying and darkness everywhere except your town and you don't have electricity. I'm just saying, like, they're gonna forget this stuff? Oh, but we're forgetful people. When we forget, our human tendency is to fill in the gaps and the blanks with our own version of what happened. It's why the Lord says, remember. It's the Lord's Passover, not yours, not mine, to reinterpret. It's the Lord's Passover. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Just a few chapters later, if you will, in Deuteronomy 8, 11, the Lord says, take care lest you forget the Lord by not keeping his commandments his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. A few verses later, he says this, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. We're plagued with this in the West. I'm a self-made man. I can point you to everything I did to accomplish what I've accomplished. I'm reminded of the old preacher from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who used to say, if you can explain everything away in your life in church, there's a good chance the Lord may not have been with you. There needs to be some inexplainable things in our lives that point to the goodness and the provision of God, your salvation, the chiefest of those. We're a forgetful people. Church historian Claire Davis describes the Christian life as a combination of amnesia and deja vu. (laughs) He says, I know I've forgotten this before. We constantly need to be reminded of things. We need to learn the same lessons over and over. And each time we suddenly remember that we have had to relearn something again. Or is that just me? In the remaining verses, we see one final dimension here. We see how important it is for this to be transmitted from generation to generation and how it happens. Look at verses 8 and 9. You shall tell your son. Do you see it? You'll tell your child. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. You've taught your children some things. Have you taught them? Do your kids know your testimony? Do your kids know about the strong hand of the Lord in your life? God's law in the mouth of the fathers, telling their children of God's substitute, God's severity, God's salvation, and God's strong hand. That's how this thing got transmitted, y'all. That's how disciples are made. That's how we impact other generations, we sit down, and Titus 2 invites all of us that are older, whether we have kids or not, whether we're married or not, all of us that are older, to be engaged in the lives of the generations behind us to communicate the word of God and his faithfulness. It's also why the Israelites were to dedicate their firstborns to the Lord, not just their flocks. Can I just give you a little assignment here in your reading of these final verses of Exodus 13 13 through 16, you'll notice that God is calling for the firstborn sons, not just the flocks, to be set aside, consecrated for his service. Honoring the Lord costs us something. 
precious, costly things, but he's worth it. I close with this. It's amazing that God offered up his own firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's an obvious progression here with this picture of a lamb, isn't there? Remember back with Abraham and Isaac? One lamb for one person. Abraham offered a ram in the place of his son Isaac. Then we see a lamb for a household at the Passover we just read, where every family in the covenant community offered its own lamb to God. Then God provides one sacrifice for the whole nation on the Day of Atonement later on in Israel's history. One lamb sacrifice for the whole nation. And finally, one day John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan sees Jesus coming toward him and says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the whole world. God was planning this all along. One lamb to die for one world. By his grace, he's provided a lamb. Revelation 13, the back of the book tells us the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. What a substitute. What a sacrifice. We cannot call our minds to the substitute of Christ without acknowledging the severity of the Father's judgment. If this were another day, if this were 10 or 15 years ago, this would almost go without saying, but I need to say this in 2020. In evangelical circles today, many are wavering and backing up on the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of God. But I want to say, without apology, we believe in the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Jesus shed his own blood for our sins. We believe that this is not a doctrine of man, but of God. It isn't hidden in the subtext. It leaps off the pages of scriptures. When the New Testament describes the meaning of the crucifixion, which you studied this morning in Sunday school, it constantly draws our attention to his blood. Romans 5, 9, we've now been justified by his blood. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Hebrews 13, Jesus also suffered to prepare a people holy through his own blood. 1 Peter 1, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, without defect. 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Spurgeon would write it well, we do not subscribe to this lax theology which teaches that the Lord Jesus did something or another, which in some way or another, to some degree or another, it's connected with some kind of salvation of men. No, we firmly believe the doctrine of the atoning death of our great substitute. We stand on the literal substitution of Jesus Christ in the place of his people and his real endurance of suffering and death in our stead and from this distinct and definite ground, we will not move an inch. Let the church say amen. On this side of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection, when we come to the communion table today, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, like God did with Israel, to remember the great substitute, to remember the severe judgment and the mercy of God, to remember the salvation which is from the Lord himself. 
and to remember that you and I exist and move and have our being by the pleasure of the strong hand of the Lord. Let's stand together. Maybe you're wondering this morning, how can a sinner come into the presence of a holy God? How can we do this? Well, we look to the Lamb. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. For those of us who have trusted in Him for our salvation, when we finally stand in judgment, we won't cower in fear. We will come marching triumphantly to Zion through the door, that narrow little door that everybody, great or small, from palaces to the streets must pass through if we would be redeemed. And the door is covered with the blood of the Lamb. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, if we're not careful, we think of the Passover as a historic moment in time for a nation that's disconnected from us, that has no real bearing and meaning in our lives today. We are sadly mistaken. Father, we hold these things tightly this morning, preparing our hearts to come to the table, recognizing that we are a forgetful people. Help us to remember, O oh God, in this age of confusion and darkness and this culture of death, which we have embraced as a nation, help us to remember what matters most. Make us ambassadors of your grace and peace and atoning work on the cross. O oh Lord, our God, we remember today because you are worthy. We worship you now in song, lifting up our voices because you are awesome and there's none like you. Let the church say amen. Let's praise the Lord with singing.